0: Log Talk Radio.
1: this is Abayomi Azikwe and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Sunday, uh, July 24th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. To another edition uh, of our program later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the recent agreement uh, reached uh, by Turkey between Ukraine and the Russian Federation, which could facilitate the shipments of grain uh, from the Black Sea area. Russian Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov has embarked upon a tour of the African continent. We'll have details on that as well. Tunisia and North Africa remains tense ahead of a referendum for a new constitution inside that country, and thousands have been impacted uh, by flooding in the Central African Republic. In the second hour, we listen uh, to a briefing from the World Health Organization on the status of the tens of millions of migrants and refugees around the world. Finally, we continue our focus on the 55th anniversary of the Detroit Rebellion of 1967. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude uh, with the African Brothers Band uh, from the West African state of Ghana. This is from the album entitled Locomotive Train.
2: One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. we We'll
1: Uh, that was uh, the African Brothers Band uh, from the West African state of Ghana. And, of course, uh, that album was entitled Locomotive Train, and you can hear the locomotive train in the music. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. And we are here uh, during the early morning hour of Monday July 25th, uh, 2022. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of our program. We want to move into our African Newswire segment. And uh, our lead story uh, deals with the brokered deal uh, between the Russian Federation and Ukraine. Uh, The deal was brokered by Turkey uh, to open up uh, the flow of grain uh, from the Black Sea region, uh, which has been closed due to the uh, conflict and the mining of the uh, waters. And uh, according to uh, the latest information, Turkish President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan said uh, yesterday uh, that grain exports via the Black Sea will begin in the coming days. uh, With the beginning of maritime grain transportation in the coming days we will make an important contribution to overcoming the global food crisis he said at turkey's Kaseri. Uh his address was aired by the trt television station erdogan also said that uh, ankara would continue its efforts to solve the ukrainian crisis diplomatically <clears throat> we are resolved to continue diplomatic efforts until peace between russia and ukraine is ensured in the near future, we hope to receive encouraging news at talks and with contacts at all levels, including leaders, the Turkish president said. A package of documents geared to resolve the problem of food and fertilizer supplies on global markets was signed on July the 22nd in Istanbul. Under the, US, under the Russia UN memorandum, the United Nations undertakes to work towards lifting anti-Russian restrictions, hampering exports of agricultural products and fertilizers. Another document envisages a mechanism of exporting grain from Ukraine-controlled Black Sea ports. An agreement between Russia, Turkey, Ukraine, and the United Nations provides for the establishment of a four-sided coordination center to search ships carrying grain to prevent weapon smuggling and to avoid provocations. And uh, other news related to the uh, Russian-Ukrainian war, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, uh, is on a diplomatic offensive uh, in Egypt. Uh, He has dismissed claims that Moscow caused the global food crisis. In a speech to the Arab League ambassadors in Cairo, he said Western nations uh, were distorting the truth about the impact of sanctions on global security. He accused Western nations of trying to impose their dominance over others. Much of the Arab world and Africa is badly affected by grain shortages caused by Russia's war in Ukraine. landmark deal, uh, signed uh, just two days ago to resume Ukraine's grain exports, hangs in the balance after Russia attacked targets in the port of Odessa on uh, Saturday. Uh, Mr. Lavrov uh, will go on to visit three African nations to rally support Amid anger uh, over uh, the war, um, Lavrov said that Western nations' aggressiveness and imposing sanctions on Russia indicated one simple conclusion. It is not about Ukraine. It is about the future of the world order. They say everybody must support a rules-based world order, and the rules are written depending on what specific situation the West wants to resolve in its own favor. Earlier, Mr. Lavrov held talks with his Egyptian counterpart, Samir Shukri. Egypt has significant ties with Russia, which supplies wheat, weapons, and until the intervention in Ukraine began large numbers of tourists. After his talks uh, with Mr. Shukri, Mr. Lavrov told a joint news conference that the West was prolonging the conflict, even though it understood what and whose end it will be. It is the first stage for Mr. Lavrov of a brief tour of Africa. He'll be going to Ethiopia, Uganda, and Congo Brazzaville. In an article published by local newspapers in the run-up to his tour, Mr. Lavrov said his country had always sincerely supported Africans in their struggle for freedom from the colonial yoke. He added that Russia appreciated Africans' balanced position on the issue of Ukraine. Ukraine and Russia usually supply... More than 40% of Africa's wheat, the African Development Bank says. Egypt is normally a big consumer of Ukrainian wheat. In 2019, it imported 3.62 million tons of wheat uh, from Ukraine, more than any other country in the world. But in his article, Mr. Lavrov rejected the accusation that Russia was exporting famine and blabbing on Western propaganda. He added that Western sanctions imposed on Russia had exacerbated negative tendencies in the international food market that stemmed uh, from the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Zikaway. And uh, there have been uh, new developments uh, in uh, the North African state of Tunisia. And, of course, uh, Tunisians will vote in a referendum on a new constitution that gives President Kais Saeed far more constitutional power. While he has some support, many Tunisians reject the constitution and say it's illegal. Tunisia is no stranger to demonstrations. Uh, Back in 2010 and 2011, uh, the demonstrations were born there, uh, in the so-called Arab Spring, before spreading across the Middle East. Mohammed Bouazi A young man without a job was selling vegetables on the street to make ends meet, and when the police told him he had to stop, he set himself on fire. It was an image of desperation which resonated so deeply that crowds of people began to gather together. They, too, were sick of economic hardships, political corruption, and an autocratic ruler. After 23 years in power, President Ben Ali was forced out, and a new chapter began for Tunisians. Now, the country's freedoms are moving in reverse, according to the opposition. A year ago, in July of 2021, Tunisia's president, Kais Saied made sweeping changes. He sacked the prime minister, dissolved the government, and suspended parliament. On Monday, Tunisians will vote on a new constitution that gives them even more control over the country. That's why Wael and Jawahar are demonstrating once again in Tunisia. We were in a parliamentary system, Wael tells me. Now we are in a presidency, a system for Kais Saeed to hold all the power in his own hands, they said. The pair protested together uh, in 2011 and 2010 as a young couple not yet married. Now they have a son, Yastar, which translates English to left in honor of their political views. We have been protesting for 11 years for the same demands, explained Jawahar. That is what is frustrating. It's a pattern. We have to repeat here every year. We have to protest for our freedom and dignity and rights. The regime is in power with the force of the police, with the force of dictatorship, uh, with uh, the force of violence, so nothing ever really changed. And you can read these articles in their entirety at the Pan-African Newswire website. Finally, residents of the Central African Republic capital of Bangui Are Recovering from floods caused by torrential rains uh, earlier last week, while there hasn't been yet an official assessment of the damage, cases of drownings have been reported, and over 100 homes have been seriously affected in just the city's fourth district alone. Nathan lives in one of these houses. On Thursday, and and again on Friday, a lot of rain fell on us. We hadn't seen anything like this for over five years. It overflowed. And we were underwater, explains Nathan cleaning sheets from uh, his, of his uh, body, which is covered in mud. In another district, the 5th, the drainage channels were said to be overflowing. Several residents went out on the streets to denounce the poorly built constructions and call, call authorities for help, something Nathan understands. Whenever this happens, we obviously need support because we can't do anything on our own, <clears throat> says the young man. There's a saying in our country Woe to the lonely man. Even with the efforts made by the government, they're still damaged. We ask them to make a little effort to repair all this so that we don't have to fall back into the state. According to a regional newspaper by and Poco International's Runaway, was completely flooded on Friday, causing difficulty for planes to depart and land. And uh, with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Wire segment of uh, the pan-african journal in concluding uh, this segment of our program we would like to remind our listeners that the pan-african newswire is an international electronic press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of african people throughout the continent and the world the press agency was founded in january of 1998 and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And, uh, of course, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Just go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. This is Abayomi Ezekue, and we'll take a
2: break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program.
3: Through the mirror of my
1: That was uh, the music of the Supremes, uh, Detroit's own Motown sound, from the uh, collection of 1967. Uh, the tune is entitled Reflections. And uh, right now we want to go to the World Health Organization briefing that was held uh, just this last past week, uh, dealing with the health status, tens of millions of migrants and refugees. Uh, let's listen in. And uh, this is the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, which is the early morning hour of Monday, July 25th, uh, 2022, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to uh, have access to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal.
4: Hello to everyone from Geneva, WHO headquarters. My name is uh, Tariq, and I welcome you to regular uh, WHO uh, virtual press conference. Uh, today's press conference is focusing on the first WHO World Report on the Health of Refugees and Migrants. Uh, we have uh, sent the report and press release under embargo to those who have requested, but uh, uh, for, for others uh, this report will be published uh, in coming minutes on our website and will be also sent to the media list. We have a special guest today who will talk about this report, and uh, Dr. Tedros will shortly uh, introduce them. Uh, From WHO side, uh, we have with us, uh, obviously, Dr. Tedros, WHO Director General, Dr. Mike Ryan, who is Executive Director of WHO Health Emergencies Program, Dr. Sumya Swaminathan, our Chief Scientist. We have Dr. Santino Severoni, who is Director of WHO Programme on health and migration. Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove, technical lead on COVID-19 is also with us as well as Dr. Rosamund Lewis who is technical lead on monkeypox. Number of WHO senior officials are online and uh, we will introduce them uh, as we uh, we, uh, proceed with the uh, question and answer session. With this, I will give the floor to Dr. Tedros for his opening remarks.
5: Thank you. Thank you, Tariq. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Today, WHO is proud to launch the First World Report on the Health of Refugees and Migrants. One in every eight people on our planet is a refugee or migrant, and the numbers are growing. With conflicts, climate change, growing inequality, and global emergencies such as the COVID-19 pandemic, more and more people will be on the move. Like anyone else, refugees and migrants have the right to the highest attainable standard of health. But the health needs of refugees and migrants are often neglected or unaddressed in the countries they pass through or settle in. They face multiple barriers, including out-of-pocket costs, discrimination, and fear of detention and deportation. Many countries do have health policies that include health services for refugees and migrants, but too many are either ineffective or are yet to be implemented effectively. The WHO World Report on the Health of Refugees and Migrants is a landmark and an alarm bell. It provides a comprehensive overview of refugee and migrant health demonstrating wide disparities between the health of refugees and migrants and the wider populations in their host countries. For example, many migrant workers are engaged in the so-called 3D jobs, dirty, dangerous, and demanding, without adequate social and health protection or sufficient occupational health measures. The report also highlights a fundamental knowledge gap. Refugees and migrants are virtually absent from global surveys and health data, making these vulnerable groups almost invisible in the design of health systems and services. But it's not all bad news. The report also highlights policy trends and examples of good practices from around the world and it offers a strategic vision for a set of collective responses to protect and promote the health of migrants and refugees. We hope governments will use this report to develop evidence-informed policies and actions, and we hope advocates will use it in their efforts to call for inclusive health systems. WHO is calling on governments and organizations that work with refugees and migrants to work together and to empower them through participatory governance, to include them in the data, to prioritize them in research, and to include them in social protection schemes and financial protection in accessing health systems worldwide, because health for all means all, including refugees and migrants. It's now my great pleasure to introduce our first guest, Professor Abdulrazak Gurnah, the winner of the 2021 Nobel Prize for Literature, a former refugee, and the signatory of today's report. Professor, it's an honor to have you here, and you have the floor.
6: Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I've had the opportunity to be, in some respects, in the shoes of the millions of uh, displaced people globally and have the challenge and privilege to voice their experiences. The physical, economic, and psychological challenges posed by migration and displacement and integration in host communities are often misheard, overlooked, or misperceived. I welcome how this report assembles available global evidence on the health of people on the move, international migrants and those forcibly displaced. How it collects this information in a single authoritative document. I am grateful for how it shines a light on the health risks, challenges, barriers and needs these populations face every day in every corner of the world. I urge planners, policymakers, and donors alike to use the wealth of information found in this report to inform decision-making. I would also like to invite them to consider the action points for governments and other stakeholders around the world to step up efforts and make good health and well-being a reality for all members of society, of which refugees and migrants are an integral part. concrete steps towards protecting and promoting the health of refugees and migrants, uh, steps closer to our health too. Thank you.
5: Thank you, thank you so much, Professor. It's now my pleasure to introduce our second guest, Dr. Wahid Aryan. Dr. Aryan is a refugee medical doctor from Afghanistan who has been appointed a United Nations Global Goals Goalkeeper for his work helping to deliver the Sustainable Development Goals, including health, well-being, and education. Dr. Aryan, welcome, and you have the floor. Shukran for joining. Thank you very much. Um, Hello, everyone.
7: It's such an honor for me uh, to be joining His Excellency, Dr. Tedros and his amazing team, who's been looking after the health of the world, especially going through very challenging times. Uh, I'm a physician, I'm an author, um, I'm a humanitarian, I'm also a refugee, and all those can be possible. Um, As a former refugee, it gives me immense happiness to contribute to the report, which clearly highlights that it's the experience of migration that is key to the health and well-being of refugees and migrants who are some of the most vulnerable people across the globe. The report details the suboptimal health determinants which contribute to poorer health outcomes uh, in refugees and migrants. I'd like to bring to life some of these suboptimal health determinants through my own story and through the story of my family going through conflict and through displacement. And that is one story out of one billion. So we have to treat each of these stories with the compassion that each one deserves. I was born in Kabul, Afghanistan during the Afghan-Soviet conflict in the 80s and spent the first five years hiding in cellars from the daily rockets, the bombs. Uh, We didn't have much food and many children, including ourselves, suffered from whooping cough. Uh, We didn't have enough clothes um, Our mother will go to the market to buy some of the Western clothes, mismatched colors, to try to keep us warm in winter. And after about five years, because it was becoming too dangerous for us, we decided to migrate to Pakistan, uh, like millions of other refugees that went. We had to take a very dangerous route through mountains and through valleys because the normal borders were closed, we were not allowed to, and we had to go on donkeys and horses. Uh, And that is a similar situation when we see refugees now taking very dangerous routes because they don't have Another alternative the formal routes the official routes as we call them are closed on their faces We came under the attack three times miraculously survived those attacks until we made it to the refugee camp initially we started residing in a tent like so many others and again the temperatures were rising up to 45 degrees with one fan and a large family trying to use whatever we can to survive. And these are the sort of conditions that are ripe for several conditions, diseases, um, such as uh, malaria and tuberculosis. Uh, Many of my family members, including myself, we um, got malaria, we survived that, and soon I contracted tuberculosis that nearly killed me but also inspired me to become a doctor. Uh, And again, the conditions that we see in refugee camps now in various parts of the world They're not too dissimilar to the conditions that I experienced firsthand. Although we were safe from bombs, we were not physically safe. We were not socially safe, and we were not mentally safe. We went back to Kabul, Afghanistan in the 90s, and again, we went through civil war, uh, which was a bloody street by street fight because of which we had to, again, reside in cellars hiding from the bombs and the rockets. And that's where most of my education happened because the schools were destroyed. So many of the refugees who we see, they have lost their childhood the same way as I did. They've lost access to education, which is a human right. And in 1999, when I was 15 years old, uh, that's when my life was in danger, um, both physically as well as I was seeing a threat to the hope for me to become a doctor in the future to heal. Um, My parents sent me away to the UK as a refugee. So that was another journey of refugee I had to take to come on my own to the UK as a 15-year-old child refugee with no family support, hardly any education, and about $100 in my pocket. But I also came with a hope, with a hope to be able to live safely, to be able to study, to be able to contribute in the future. And that's how so many other refugees across the globe and immigrants, they, they come in not only as as a a physical presence, but also with the hopes and the dreams. And despite suffering socially, not having much command of English, not being able to integrate as a result, also suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder as well. And the report clearly highlights that up to 22.1% of the population affected by conflict can be affected by mental health disorders. I was one of them. But despite all that, it was the compassion of the British people in the UK uh, that helped me to realize my dream of becoming a doctor, going on to study at New Cambridge University and Harvard until I became a doctor. Again, this is one example out of one billion. And I see all these refugees and migrants as dreamers. And if we see migration from the lens of compassion, regardless of the race, regardless of their background, not through a political or racial division lens, which sadly is happening across the globe. I believe that's how we can build and strengthen our communities, and that's also a route to be able to reorient our existing healthcare system so we can achieve universal health coverage. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Adrian. Uh, Before we move to questions and answers, a few brief remarks on the COVID-19 pandemic and the global monkeypox outbreak. In the past six weeks, the global weekly number of reported cases of COVID-19 has almost doubled. These are also increasing, but for the moment, uh, not as rapidly as cases However, more cases means we can expect to see more hospitalizations and deaths in the coming weeks. There are many sublineages of the Omicron variant, most notably BA5, which is the most transmissible variant detected yet. We have said consistently that this virus will continue to evolve and we must be ready for whatever it throws at us. That could be a new version of the variants we already know or something completely new. We know that for any future variant to become widespread, it must be more transmissible than previous variants, but we can't know how deadly it will be. So all countries must be ready. Countries that have dismantled some parts of their pandemic response systems are taking a huge risk. All countries have gaps. Now is the time when hospitals are not full for all countries to address those gaps in surveillance, immunity, workforce, supplies, and resilience. We will see continued waves of infection, but we need not see continued waves of hospitalization and death. We have the tools to save lives, vaccines, tests, therapeutics, and public health tools. Our current vaccines remain highly effective against severe disease and death. The focus in every country must be to vaccinate all health workers, all older people, and all people at at greatest risk. We will need more vaccines that are better at protecting against infection and if and when we get those vaccines, we cannot afford the same horrific inequity that strained the rollout of vaccines last year. On monkeypox, almost 14,000 confirmed cases have now been reported to WHO this year from more than 70 countries and territories. So far, five deaths have been reported, all in Africa. Most cases continue to be reported from Europe, primarily among men who have sex with men. Although we are seeing a declining trend in some countries, others are still seeing an increase, and six countries reported their first cases last week. Some of these countries have much less access to diagnostics and vaccines, making the outbreak harder to track and harder to stop WHO is validating, procuring, and shipping tests to multiple countries and will continue to provide support for expanded access to effective diagnostics. One of the most powerful tools we have against monkeypox is information. The more information people at risk of monkeypox have, the more they are able to protect themselves. That's why WHO is continuing to work with patients and community advocates to develop and deliver information tailored to the affected communities and more likely to be accepted and implemented. This week, WHO updated its guidance for men who have sex with men to include additional advice and information for the affected community. Tomorrow the International Health Regulations Emergency Committee will reconvene to review the latest data and to consider whether the outbreak constitutes a public health emergency of international concern. Regardless of the committee's recommendation, WHO will continue to do everything we can to support countries to stop transmission and save lives. Tariq, back to you.
4: Thank you, Dr. Tedros, uh, thank you, Professor Gugnar, and thank you, Dr. Arian, for these opening remarks. Uh, uh, let me tell you who is uh, or who should be online from WHO side uh, and who uh, also may answer some questions. Uh, we should have with us uh, Dr. Zuzana Jacob, Deputy Director General, uh, Dr. Mariangela Simao, who is Assistant Director General, Access to Medicine, Dr. Sosefal, is uh, Assistant Director General for Emergency Response. Uh, with us should also be Dr. Kate O'Brien, Director for Immunization, and also Dr. Maria Neira, who is the Director of our Department on, on Environment, Climate Change, and Health. Um, this press conference has a simultaneous interpretation into six UN languages, Portuguese and Hindi. So if journalists want to ask questions in those languages, please welcome to do so. Now we will start with the with questions and first we will go to Simon Ataba from Today News Africa. Simon, please unmute yourself.
8: Thank you, Tariq, for taking my question. This is Simon Ateba with Today News Africa in Washington.
5: The WHO says the case fatality rate for the Marburg virus disease recently identified in Ghana can be up
8: to 88% depending on the strain and other factors. That's pretty high. That's almost like a death sentence. Can you tell us more about the
5: recent outbreak in Ghana and the spread of the mad bird virus disease now
8: around the world, and whether it should be a case for concern? Uh, concern and what the who is doing to contain it i know that the white house said yesterday that the u.s official are in close collaboration with who official and those in ghana thank you
4: thank you simon Uh, do we have uh, dr fal with us Uh, dr fal thank you for the
8: question this is a very important question let me first of all uh, we have a number of countries in the African region which are in the ecological niche of virus, which is very close to Ebola. We have at least 20 countries at least for virus outbreak. So the last outbreak we had was in 2021 in Guinea. So far in Ghana, two cases have been identified, and uh, the diagnosis has been confirmed, and the sequencing also shows that this sign is the same we have had in Guinea last year. The show is working with government and partners for investigation, contact tracing, to make sure that we can stop the transmission early enough. The virus can be very deadly if nothing is done. Unfortunately for Marble, there is no vaccine compared to Ebola, where we have now two vaccines but uh, making sure that we identify contact early, you know, we isolate cases and we provide supportive treatment, we help to improve, you know, the survival rate. So early diagnostic and isolation, early treatment, we help people to survive. Of course, if nothing is done, the case fatality rate will be very high. Let me also highlight that we are working very hard as a priority in our research and development for to develop therapeutic vaccine for my Thank you.
4: Thank you, Dr. Fals. So uh, we will go to the next question. We have Elaine Fletcher from Health Policy Watch. Elaine.
9: Thank you for taking my question. On the report, um, Dr. Tedros, on migrants and refugees, uh, you said uh, it's one out of eight people on the planet. I think the news page says one out of seven. So if you can just clarify that factoid. And then in addition, if you could tell us what proportion of migrants and refugees have access to some kind of health coverage. Is there, is there some sort of single number that gives us an idea of that gap um, in the report? Thank you.
4: Thank you, Elaine. Maybe uh, Dr. Severoni could, uh, could address those questions. Thank you Tariq. Um Regarding the access to services,
10: indeed, particularly during the uh, initial phase of COVID outbreak, we've been analyzing the policy setting of all member states in terms of including or not including refugees and migrants in the uh, response uh, measures. And uh, in a a simple simplifying number, about one-third of the countries worldwide, they use an approach of uh, promoting universalistic approach, universal coverage and primary care uh, approach. Uh, the majority of the countries, although they opted for temporary solutions, so solutions put in place uh, due to the necessity of uh, facing the uh, reality at the moment, but also with probably an intention and possibility to go back to the setting prior to the crisis.
4: Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Severny, uh, may, maybe uh, our guests would like to add something uh, on, on this topic, maybe Dr. Arian and Professor Guggenheim, if you would like to add something on the accessibility of, uh, of healthcare to, to migrants and refugees. Um, thank you. Um, I would like to add that
7: um, we've seen it uh, throughout the COVID pandemic that uh, access to healthcare uh, for refugees, in particular, um, sadly, is not uniform. Uh, so it, it varies from country to country, it varies from region to region, and that's where all the other um, health determinants come into play. So when we're talking about health, if we look at it from more from the social, physical, and the mental uh, well-being perspective, we'll be able to see that uh, there are so many factors. In, that are interplay, play. And in my view, it, in achieving universal health coverage, uh, if you look at refugees and migrants as a whole, rather than just look at, for example, if they're catching COVID or not catching COVID, or they're um, at risk of uh, one disease or another. Uh, so we are ignoring everything else that's going around them. Uh, and that's why this report is uh, uh, amazingly so extensive that it identifies and highlights and put a foundation in place on which we can base our research, our um, contributions, and how the policies um, are changed in the future. So we can revisit it again and see how much of
6: progress we've made. One of the, uh, I think, important suggestions that the report makes is for increased surveillance of the condition of the Migrants and refugees when they when they arrive, or indeed as they are uh, moving towards uh, their destinations, uh, many of them, of course, either as a result of uh, the uh, the poor conditions from which I mean health provision conditions from which they're leaving, or the uh, difficulties of the journeys they have to make, uh, arrive with already severe problems, health problems, and these are not. Uh, known, or they are disguised, or they are not even acknowledged, perhaps by the uh, refugees themselves. So one of the recommendations is precisely to uh, to sharpen that uh, surveillance of the of the conditions of the of the refugees and migrants.
4: Many thanks, uh, Professor Gurner, uh Dr Severoni, and Dr Arian. Let's uh, try to go to the next question. We have uh, Mega from uh, Geneva Solutions. Uh, Mega, could you please unmute yourself and ask your question?
0: Yes, thank you. Uh, There were many social determinants that were mentioned in the report. Um, In your study, was there any single biggest factor among the social determinants that you had mentioned that has affected access to healthcare among refugees and migrants? Was there any single biggest Factor. Thank you,
4: Uh, Mega. Could you just like uh, slowly repeat the question? The the line was not the best. Uh, If I understood well, it was about Uh, a social uh, and economic determinants. Determinants. Uh,
0: Can I repeat the question? Yes, please. Okay. Um, There were many social determinants that affect access to healthcare um, that were mentioned in the report. I was just wondering uh, if the team um, had. If the team had discovered any single biggest factor among those determinants that affected access to health care among refugees and migrants.
4: Thank you, Megha, this time it was clear. Uh, Dr. Severoni, would you would you like? No, it's never a,
10: a result of a single uh, determinant. Indeed, the legal framework, the definition of the group on the on movement might be a, a major limitations. Those are uh, people that government that tend to um, identify through a legal definition. So the regularity or irregularity tend to determine the level of uh, entitlement, they are uh, level of access to health systems and possible entitlement. This is probably the most important barrier. But uh, this is also um, uh, mixing with uh, issues related to cultural, linguistic uh, barrier and also element of uh, competency of the healthcare workers while they have to uh, face possible health needs related to this population.
4: Uh, Many thanks. Um, We may now uh, try to go to the next question. It's uh, John Zaracostas, who
11: uh, writes for Lancet. John? Yes, uh, good afternoon. Uh, Thank you. I'd like to uh, perhaps uh, get from the experts uh, some more details on the very high levels of self-harm among migrants and refugees and also the very high levels of post-stress disorder uh, of refugees in some very advanced and affluent European countries, what is the reason that your research has shown for that? Thank you
4: thank you john well we have uh, we have our three uh, experts here, so who would like to start maybe
10: Well, there is an element which came out pretty strong out of the report that uh, particularly those which they managed to resettle down in country of destination, migrants or refugees, they tend to be widely involved into um, jobs which are mostly, uh, as defined before, 3D jobs, so dirty or, or labor type of uh, activities which are highly exposing to uh, occupational uh, injuries. There are studies which they proved that about 40% of the population which has been uh, surveyed Sample has been reporting at least one accident related to uh, their own uh, condition of, of employment. There is another element which is playing particular importance in the um, self-infliction or even uh, mental uh, issues related to the process uh, around the migratory, uh, the migration phenomenon. Uh, detention is still widely utilized as a methodology of management of migration, particularly um, in the case of uh, irregular migrations or those which are willing to get the protection and uh, they are forced to use the asylum seeking. And uh, detention has been shown in the report to be a, a terrible uh, trigger for risk of uh, uh, mental disorders, depression, anxiety, and also self inflictions of uh, uh, trauma and uh, lesions or mutilation also in certain cases. This is a widespread phenomenon, particularly if you take into consideration that the migration journey in certain cases can be also long, two, three years, and uh, the transiting in those called uh, technically or in jargon Uh, transiting countries or countries which are hosting uh, the population while trying to reach the destination uh, also are um, often uh, managing these flows with a uh, wide use of uh, of detentions or rejection of of these people towards the borders. Thank you very much. Um Just to highlight
7: um, from my own experience as a physician working in the National Health Service in the UK as an emergency doctor, but also as a humanitarian working with refugees, that the PTSD that we see amongst refugees or other mental health disorders such as extreme anxiety, depression, uh, it's actually accumulation of many levels of traumas over many months and years. It's not a sudden phenomenon that they arrive somewhere and they get this disorder that we see. Um, examples I give through my own story of displacement, but others who are going through conflict, through displacement, by abandoning their family members, their loved ones, the social protective factors which uh, are enhancing their mental well-being, and then you're putting them in a place where they don't have those preventative mechanisms in place, and if they've been through traumas, they come to a situation where they are suffering and they're suffering extensively. And on the other hand, they are either not screened for mental health problems, they're not understood well because of the language, because of the social barriers. Um, And in many instances, they have to go in hiding Um, or they're put in detention centers or they go in hiding because of uh, the political reasons, whether their cases have not been resolved or they've been rejected and they try to live uh, in, in extremely unkept unca- conditions, so it's an it's accumulation of many factors that contribute to it. But how do we make sure that uh, we reach to a position where we can actually help these people uh, and that is, should be the question that we should be asking policy makers.
4: Um, uh, per- Professor, sir, would you like to add something?
6: Well, I don't think I, I have anything to add suffice, uh that issue of the mental health of the refugees. I think these two have, uh, in various ways, great experience with that. But I was trying to remember the second half of that question about rich countries. I wonder if we, we could have it again. Is it possible? The, the question? The, was the second part. Ah,
4: uh, do we have a John online
11: John, can you unmute yourself uh, and if you can. Yes, hi, yes. Yes, I was interested uh, from your research why you had uh, very high cases of uh, PTSD uh, among migrants and refugees living in some very affluent northern European countries. Uh, what What is the research showing? Is that the elements that the doctor just mentioned or is that also rejection by the host society?
6: Uh, Well, I will just say that it seems to me, not speaking professionally as somebody working in medicine, that uh, a lot of responsibility for the kind of neglect that has been mentioned uh, by my two colleagues here is, um, it it seems to me, part of what the establishment, the authorities, the governments uh, decide to do, driven, no doubt, by some kind of desire to to address uh, a kind of populist opinion says we're not being taken advantage of or something of this kind. You're quite right that uh, these are prosperous societies and at times it seems as if they're not acting as humanely as they might.
10: Yeah, just to confirm, probably the right answer is both um, elements are contributing to an increased detection of of uh, traumatic uh, post-traumatic stress. Indeed, the migra- migra- migration experience, but also the level of inclusion of uh, of uh, um, yeah social inclusion at the uh, place of destination. This is probably the most uh, complex challenge that newcomers and new arrivals need to face while recycling in the destination. And uh, the mental health uh, correlation are pretty well documented.
4: Many thanks. Uh, Let's uh, move to the next question. We have Arshwin from Observer Times India. Arshwin?
11: Thank you for considering my question as uh it is worth remembering it is worth remembering to martin Luther king in an address to the second national convention of the medical committee of human rights in 1996 that is of all the forms of inequality injustice in the health is the most shocking and inhuman. It's, it is remains to be years later. My question is how far how further we have been achieved to provide healthcare facilities for migrants and refugees as the number of migrants and refugees are increasing from the past decades of the year. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Arsvin. The, the line was a bit broken at the beginning, but I think we've got a question, and it's how far we got into ensuring uh, access to, uh, to health care for migrants and, 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 and refugees. So maybe uh, Dr. Celeroni can, can start.
10: This is the objective of uh, uh, our work and uh, WHO commitment. I have to say that uh, one element which came out pretty Interestingly, in the findings of the report is that although we are still far away from an ideal situation, in reality, this is a changing world uh, since few years ago when the element of uh, migration or the health aspect of uh, migration that were almost not considered by the health sector of many countries, uh, today the reality is completely changed. The health issues are uh, equally, uh, and the migration issues are on top of the political agenda of, of most of the uh, governments, although the topic remains controversial, often politicize and polarizing, but indeed countries, they are showing better understanding, uh, commitment, and pledging interventions in order to improve the uh, situation of uh, protection of migrants and granting access to essential services including health. I repeat, this is not yet an ideal situation. Unfortunately, we're having still many reality which are uh, very difficult, very concerning, but also the overall macro picture is uh, somehow encouraging because uh, something happened and many countries are uh, probably um, showing a different level of commitment and understanding of the importance of this issue. I would just
7: like to um, actually reiterate what Dr. Severoni has just mentioned that um, although there are many areas we can improve upon but there is hope and there is progress, in my view, even as a, as a physician. Um, I've seen it um, at the level of the service providers that many doctors, nursing staff across the globe with whom we partner or charity organisation, or globally, they are acutely aware of the varying needs of migrants and refugees. And they talk about it in conversations, whether it's formal or informal, uh, and that is a, a very I would say constructive position to be in on which we should build uh, from top to bottom. And I think policy, of course, is extremely important from the top, but then translating and connecting the bottom approach at the level of the service providers, in my view, is extremely also important. How to translate, for example, this report into action, how to translate uh, that in, not only into policy, but into tangible gains on the ground.
4: Uh, thank you, Dr. Severoni and uh, Dr. Arian. Uh, I'm just looking uh, into um, into chat. Uh, we got a question on monkeypox. Uh, and sorry, I didn't really. I'm not able to read the name right now uh, of the of the reporter. And the question is: In the light of monkeypox outbreak, what are the top several points of advice that people need to have right now to protect themselves and people around them? So I don't know, Dr. Lewis, if you could address this question.
9: Thank you very much, Tarek. Uh, well, it's an excellent question. So, the many points of advice. Uh, number one is uh, communication, right? So, uh, information to the people who need to have the information to protect themselves. That is uh, possibly uh, the, the most important one. Um, at the moment, we are seeing a very um, mixed pattern of transmission in some parts of the world, uh, such as uh, parts of Africa, Western Central Africa, but in other countries all around the world, 99% of cases. Reported are among men so it is men who are at risk right now not all men um, 98% of those that are reported are among men who have sex with men and primarily those who have multiple recent anonymous uh, or new partners so it's a question of really understanding what the risk is for an individual what our individual uh, risk of exposure, the choices we make, and this is particularly important because people do want this information. People want the information to know how to protect themselves, in what circumstances are people perhaps at risk or, or getting infected. So for example, uh, the WHO is working extensively with representatives of affected communities, working extensively with uh, members of uh, organizations that are, that are uh, having festivals, organizing pride, celebrating these are all important celebrations of identity. It is also very important that those uh, venues and events and activities share information for people to protect themselves. We have heard today that the um, coverage of information in some of these events remains patchy, that some event organizers uh, and, and festivals are sharing this information very broadly and others may not be, and uh, there may be different reasons for that. But we are urging all uh, health authorities and all community organizers to engage uh, with the affected community to find out how they would like the information presented, how they would like to receive the information. And then the second message is, of course, is that there are uh, ways to protect oneself beyond uh, simply being aware of the risk, which is the most important, but also in terms of access to services, access to uh, testing, Uh, Finding out where tests are available and and how they can best be taken. Finding out uh, where vaccines possibly may be available and how they can best be accessed as well. Uh, Finding out what are the right measures to protect people around you such as um, people who do have monkeypox, have confirmed case of monkeypox and have symptoms should remain uh, isolated at home to protect their families uh, and uh, uh, other contacts that they, other people they may be in contact with in future. So these are just a few of the messages. Uh, thanks for the question uh, we continue to work with all uh, engaged parties uh, on this very important issue.
12: Um, th- thanks Rosman, it's, I think you've really laid it out there extremely well. Um, uh, and I, I, I think that that issue of focusing on this disease is transmissible. But it's not that transmissible it's a disease in which transmission can be contained and we can like we said in COVID don't be the person to pass this disease on it doesn't matter what group you're in if you have this if you have the lesions if you can get tested if you can't get tested and you suspect that you have monkeypox don't pass it on Uh, the community that's currently been infected is one of the most engaged powerful responsible communities that we have Uh, who have really worked so hard over many years to contain an even more deadly virus. Uh, So therefore we have full confidence that this community uh, can and will and is engaging very closely in order to to do that. We also need in the broader public health community is to keep an eye on other population subgroups which we are doing. Uh, We've said that before. We're keeping a very close surveillance uh, around this virus but also we need to think that this transmission is occurring and has been occurring in African countries in two particular zones over a large number of years and we don't fully understand what's driving transmission in those countries and there's a lot more investigation to do and a lot more investment to make in understanding that problem or else we, like with COVID uh, and pandemics, we're destined to repeat these things if we don't understand their origins, we don't understand their drivers. So we have two jobs of work to do. We have to work very closely with the community that's currently affected to ensure that they have the empowerment, they have the resources, they have the knowledge to contain this disease, uh, that we keep an eye on and, and make sure that other population groups are not affected. And we work with the countries that are affected with zoonotic transmission and onward transmission. And I think that's one of the issues, and Rosamund, I know you've said this many times, we have patterns of transmission in places like Ghana and in Nigeria that actually aren't purely zoonotic. There is human-to-human transmission that has occurred and does occur, not explosively, but it does occur in those environments. So we have a lot of knowledge to gain uh, in, in the coming months. Uh, a lot of work to do uh, and a lot of uh, investment to make both in the communities affected by this disease but in the science of understanding this and Samia and myself on the research and development blueprint team with Rosamund's team and, and others are also working very hard on the research agenda for both vaccines and drugs for these for this disease.
0: Just wanted to add uh, to what Mike said about um, monkeypox uh, vaccines and therapeutics, R&D. The R&D Blueprint team has been working with uh, scientists and colleagues, uh, academics around the world. And uh, there is now a core protocol that's been developed um, to use um, the available vaccines, in a clinical trial in in affected uh, countries amongst exposed populations to actually test the efficacy of these vaccines because this has not been done. And this is a good opportunity for us. And again, because of the community uh, that's been uh, involved, the population that's involved is is very much, um, has been a partner in research and development for um, HIV therapeutics, for example, over many years and have advocated for the uh, testing and development of, uh, of countermeasures. And so it would be really good if uh, research funders could come together right now to really prioritize the uptake of uh, such a platform trial that could be run across multiple countries using the same endpoints and the same interventions and the same definitions, So that one could have uh, the uh, added advantage of having um, results on the use of uh, both the therapeutic as well as uh, vaccines that may be currently being used in countries. But um, this is an opportunity we shouldn't miss. And I I, I do think that uh, if we've learned something from uh, the COVID pandemic is that there was a lot of research that was done around the world, which did not add a lot of value. There were a lot of clinical trials funded that did not answer the question. Whereas there were a few platform trials that were done that did actually answer the question of whether or not a particular drug reduce mortality from, uh, from COVID. So just learning from that, I would imagine that this is the right time to really, for the research funders in particular, but also communities to engage in uh, taking on trials. And again, doing it across countries, across continents so that we have um, robust data uh, that, that could then result in, uh, in the licensing of these products for this particular indication, as well as uh, drive more innovative uh, products. As far as WHO is concerned, we have the target product profiles that have been developed and also core protocols. And I think it's now for the scientific community to come together um, to take it forward.
4: Thanks to uh, all of you. And maybe one more question uh, before we close. We have Zainab Hussein from British Medical Journal. Uh, Zainab, uh, Please unmute yourself and uh, go ahead.
9: Hi, Um, my first question, Claire, I have a few questions. My first question is, could you please give us some examples of what kind of urgent and collective action that we need to do to ensure that refugees and migrants can access the health and care services that are sensitive to their needs in particular? And my second question, if possible, if you could answer, please. Um, is how could we improve the quality, the relevance and the completeness of the health data on refugees and migrants?
4: Uh, uh, and Dr. Severoni, do you want to, to, to get the question repeated? Yes. Uh, Zainab, can you please repeat the question because Dr. Severoni was, 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 did not hear it properly?
9: Yes, of course. Is that both questions?
4: Uh, yes. Please repeat both questions, please.
9: Yep, sure. So my first question is, what kind of urgent and collective action do we need to ensure that refugees and migrants access health and care services that are sensitive to their needs? Um, What kind of examples, maybe? Um, And the second question is, how can we improve the health data that we have on refugees and migrants to make sure that the quality is better and that they're more relevant um, and more helpful to us? Thank you.
4: Thank you. Thank you. I think uh, think Dr. Severoni and our guests uh, have have heard the question now.
10: I'm starting with a a second part related to data. Uh, Indeed, the reality we are observing is that it's not that we are having absence of data, but mostly we are confronting with a... Uh, set of data not comparable, fragmented, uh, difficult to be offered to support uh, rational policy speculation or formulation or to detect trends of uh, um, situations at country level. So um, certainly this is a priority area to invest into encouraging countries to start to collect or to improve the collection of data, try to collect disaggregated data, not only by gender but also by migratory status, Uh, this is um, still very embryo stage I would say in in most of the countries. The element of data is not the only part. We are realizing that still there is need to invest into quality research in order to produce evidence which is uh, uh, more uh, useful to understand what are the dynamics in relation to uh, access, the systems, what are the barriers which are playing an important role in uh, preventing... Uh, this group of populations to, uh, to access the services and the health systems. Uh, indeed, as I mentioned previously, and this is the first part of your question, probably the most concern is the legal framework. Um, if we are observing the dynamic of population movement, uh, the uh, request of protection of asylum, unless particular cases like we have seen, for example, uh, in the, uh, with the with the Ukrainian crisis, it's a process which requires the uh, requesting of protection to show up at the country of destination and ask this protection. Uh, usually, this is a process that can take one year or even two years to be completed from the receiving countries where during this period the person is an asylum seeker, uh, usually uh, not having full access to the health system, but there are ad hoc services made available for centers dealing with uh, asylum seekers. Um, the uh, re- person requesting protection, if fell in the process of uh, requesting protection might be rejected. And in many cases, those are becoming irregular migrants. And the case of uh, irregularity is a major, major obstacle for the individual to uh, request support and assistance. We have run, uh, against a survey to to see what is the perception in terms of accessing the health system by 30,000 interviewed refugees and migrants worldwide and it was interesting that the uh, fear of deportation was the reason reported by 37% of the interviewed and then close to 30% for incapability to face the cost associated with uh, uh, purchasing the medical assistance uh, needed and uh, um, not secondary, the difficulty to navigate the systems, the health systems, the difficulty to capture the necessary informations in order to identify where to uh, go to receive support and uh, access to the uh, service health support needed. Those factors, those elements should be addressed in a regular manner without a policy, sound policies supported by solid facts, data and evidence uh, is difficult that can address uh, those barriers. And indeed the uh, element of healthcare workforce is central. Um, The um, competency of the healthcare workforce is an essential element. Again, studies that we've been uh, observing with the report clearly identified that the capacity of the healthcare care workers to understand and to communicate and to uh, provide the needed attention to uh, those type of uh, patients that were uh, essential according to their own perception of support and, and, and uh, uh, health assistance. So the element of investing into undergraduate or continuous education for healthcare care workers is also an important element in strengthening quality of healthcare service for refugees and migrants.
4: Um. Would you like to add something, Dr. Ariane?
7: Um I just want to add, I think uh, it's coming from a colleague from the British Medical Journal, and I think the specific one, Lee, to ask some examples. Uh, one thing I would ask the doc, um, add to Dr. Savroni has mentioned is the urgent collective action that we can take is screening. Screening for both physical and mental health conditions. This is something that not only leads to treatment, but it also leads, is extremely important to prevention. Many of these migrants and refugees who come in, they come in with various levels or various uh, chronic diseases. Um, from heart conditions to, to so many others. But they also come in with PTSD, severe anxiety and depression. So if you don't screen them, and, and sadly I work in the NHS and, and it doesn't happen in many other countries as well, I'm not picking just on the NHS, it is that sort of at the point level of screening or somewhere that they can come in and confidently without the fear of being persecuted, without the fear of being, their data being used against them objectively just for the sake of their healthcare, they're reassured that come in and we would like to have a chat with you. They're assessed by clinical psychologists, by general practitioners, not for them to wait to the point where they have a crisis, where they self-harm, whether they have a heart attack or whether they have many other problems. And then we pick up the pieces in the emergency department and that's how we overburden the healthcare system because we're not getting it right, right at the start.
4: Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Uh, Arian. And I understand there is a specific question from uh, one of our uh, viewers online for Professor Gugnach. So it's uh, Tami Haltman from All Africa. Tami, please uh, please unmute yourself.
9: Yes, did the unmute work?
4: Uh, yes.
9: Okay, thanks. Professor Gurna, I wonder if you could comment on the role of creative culture and media in communicating health information among refugees, especially survivors of conflict across Africa. I
6: guess, I guess you could write a book about, uh, about that as a way of illustrating uh, the difficulties people go through. I think that kind of work already exists. Um, I think what, is, what this report does, and indeed those last two responses, that uh, were very, very eloquent in identifying what the problem is and what needs to be done when it concerns the uh, um, I diagnosing and uh, surveilling and being aware of the needs of uh, refugees. Um, yeah, if you search the uh, uh, the the libraries, as it were. There are many creative works that people are writing about these things now from different positions. Um, So I don't think there's any kind of special answer that I can give, except that they're there. Um, Some of them perhaps not quite so well known, or they're on the internet, or there are works that are produced by um, uh, activist bodies, but there are plenty of uh, creative accounts that try to capture and to disseminate the experience Uh, of migration and refugees. Thank you, uh,
4: Professor Gugner and uh, uh, Dr. Arian. As well, uh, thanks to all of other uh, WHO speakers who were with us uh, today. This will conclude our press briefing uh, for uh, July 20th. Uh, And then uh, we will, as always, send uh, to reporters audio and video file from this briefing, and hopefully transcript will be posted on our website tomorrow morning. Uh, With this, uh, I give the final word to Dr. Peters.
5: Thank you. Thank you, Tariq. Um, Again, I would like to thank uh, our Nobel laureate, Professor Abdulraza Gurna, for joining us today, and also to Dr. Wahid uh, Aryan. So thank you. Thank you so much indeed. And uh, I know you will continue to be the voice of uh, refugees and and migrants who deserve our attention, our collective attention. Um, Then there was one um, issue, I think, um, a specific question. I don't know if it was addressed, but uh, the first must be the first uh, journalist who asked whether the true uh, figure is 1 in 7 or 1 in 8 migrants, I mean uh, people who are uh, uh, migrants. Uh, I checked that, and in my statement, it's 1 in 8. In the report, it's 1 in 8, so please take the 1 in 8 people are migrants. Um, then the last part, what can we do you know, for refugees, migrants, to access health care, I think the report covers it, uh, uh, but if we take just one key issue, um, it's political. So it's a matter for the political leaders in in every country uh, to make a decision, to show political uh, commitment, to address the barriers that refugees and migrants are facing. It could be a legal one. It could be administrative. It could be financial and to, to treat them uh, humanely by addressing uh, uh, their problems. And for that to happen, I think including it in their national policies, uh, programs, uh, will be really key, and that's what we will continue to advocate. So if this is a political issue, and the political leaders uh, should uh, address it. If that's addressed, I think the rest could be okay. The financial, the other barriers could be okay, as long as the political leaders are receptive or welcoming refugees and migrants. Uh, for human beings, I think movement is, uh, <laughs> you know, a tradition, or it's in our DNA. Uh, we have been moving for, for, for millennia. Uh, and um, even countries um, who prided themselves of not having any refugees because of conflict or other problems, are now becoming major contributors of refugees and migrants. And any country could be in the same same state. Probably those who are stable now could have contributed more in, in, in the past. So it it, it, it it rotates. We will not stay the same way. So we will be guests today or we will be receiving guests tomorrow. It, it, it's for everyone. So when we do it, we do it for ourselves. We do it for, 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 for humanity because as human beings, we are vulnerable. Anything can happen that can move us out of our uh, places. Uh, we would be forced to leave uh, our places, and treating each other in a humane way will will be very important because we we maybe could be hosts today, but we may look for hosts uh, tomorrow. Uh, so let's be kind to each other. That's what we 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 are saying. And refugees and migrants need need protection because it's human behavior to move and we can end up being one any day and um, it's, it's a humanity issue and also a political issue that should be addressed by political leaders and I hope our political leaders will read our, our report and um, do their best to help refugees and and migrants wherever uh, the, they are. And doing that, it's not just for the refugees and migrants. Uh, we should also know that the hosts also um, it, it also benefits the host the host countries in in many ways. I don't want to go into that. But when you help refugees and migrants, you're not just doing it for them, but You're doing it for yourself, I mean the host countries. Um, And uh, that's why uh, doing it the right way is uh, actually, um, you know, a plus uh, for for everybody, for the refugees and migrants or for the host country. So thank you so much to our uh, members of the press for joining us uh, today, uh, and see you next time.
1: welcome back and uh that was a uh an extensive briefing uh from the world health organization uh it took place uh last week uh that is uh several days ago and of course uh we're here at the pan african journal worldwide radio broadcast i am your host uh, abayomi Azikawe. and uh the issues covered were very broad Uh, The various uh, public health uh, crises that are facing uh, Africa and indeed the world uh, were discussed in depth. And um, right now we want to take a break and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of uh, the Pan-African Journal for this week. Of uh, Hugh Mundell and uh, music uh, from uh, the Caribbean Island nation of Jamaica, and we're here at the Pan African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for the early morning hours of uh, Monday, uh, July twenty fifth, twenty twenty two. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, as we mentioned in our program, our previous program. Uh, This week represents the 55th anniversary of the Great uh, Rebellion in Detroit uh, in July of 1967. And uh, during that time period, as we covered in the previous program, uh, there were unrest and rebellions and mass demonstrations in cities all across the United States. In fact, it changed the perception and character of how uh, the United States is viewed on an international level, particularly in 1967 uh, when the war in Vietnam uh, was raging and U.S. imperialism was being defeated uh, in uh, Southeast Asia. This uh, next audio file is a rare uh, collector's audio file. It features a panel discussion uh, that took place Around the time of the Detroit Rebellion of 1967, it features uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., who was president at the time of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Roy Wilkins, who was the executive secretary of uh, the NAACP, and uh, other panelists uh, included uh, prominent uh, social critic and former comedian Dick Gregory. Remember, uh, these uh, remarks, uh, this particular panel discussion that was held during that time period uh, was reflective of the general political mood uh, in the United States at that time. Uh, Let's listen in.
13: We've given a few minutes for the photographers, the amateur photographers, to have their play. so we'll ask them, please, to uh, uh, give us a play now and after it's all over, why they can have another shot at this distinguished panel. May I say in opening this meeting that the first part will not be on television, the second part will. I invited to participate in this panel the most distinguished leaders of the Negro and white community who have dealt with big city problems that I could possibly envisage. Immediately on my right is Dr. Martin Luther King. On his right is Mayor Ivan Allen of Atlanta, Georgia, who has done so much for racial understanding in that city. On his right is Roy Wilkins, the president of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People the oldest organization in this country which has fought valiantly for years for a better understanding between the races and immediately on mr wilkins right is the famous dick gregory dick gregory was uh, actually as the late starter i talked <laughs> to dick last night he's coming in tonight to entertain us at the dinner. We didn't expect him so early this morning. We're delighted to have him here. And uh, he's not going to participate in the panel discussion, but he will liven up the questions afterwards. (laughs) And immediately on my left is Mark Evans, of Metromedia and Channel 5 in Washington. Now, we are going to start in just a minute with a discussion from the three members of the panel, which will not be on television because we wanted to get a, a more comprehensive study of this vitally uh, important and so difficult problem as riots and the race problems of the big city. And then after we have heard from the panel, we will then go on television and they will summarize their remarks briefly for the purpose of the, for the sake of the television audience. And then the, the audience will then participate through questions which you will ask from the floor from these two microphones. When you ask the questions from the floor, please be careful, in the first place, not to make too much congestion down here. We may have a traffic problem. (laughs) And second, please keep the questions brief. Now, I think that's all that uh, we need in the way of introduction. I want to express my personal thanks to the three members of the panel, for coming here. Uh, Dr. King, I have known for some time, and I suppose there's probably—it's it's a rather trite saying when uh, you introduce people to an audience or a speaker to an audience—that a man needs no introduction. I suppose of all the people in the United States next to the President of the United States that uh, Dr. King needs no introduction, Dr. King.
14: Thank you very kindly, Mr. Pearson. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Uh, let me say that I'm delighted to be here and to have the opportunity of being a part of this very significant occasion. And certainly it is a great pleasure to... Uh, share the platform with my very good friends, Mayor Allen, Roy Wilkins, and uh, Dick Gregory. Certainly in these days of emotional tension, uh, when the problems of our nation and the problems of the world are gigantic in extent and chaotic in detail, it is certainly necessary to have broad understanding and to have creative dialogue in order to discuss the problems and try to deal with the root causes. I'm going to make a promise, and that is that I'm going to be very brief because we've got to get on with the discussion. And I can assure you that brevity is a magnificent accomplishment for a Baptist preacher. I want to make my remarks on the basis of what I would uh, use as a subject, and that is the other America, because I think this is the chief problem that we face today in our cities and the chief problem that we face in our nation as a whole and i use this uh, subject because we do literally have two americas one america is beautiful for situation and in a real sense this america is overflowing with the milk of opportunity and the honey of prosperity uh, this america is a habitat of millions of men and women who have food and material necessities for their bodies, culture and education for their minds, and freedom and human dignity for their spirits. And in this America, little children grow up in the sunlight of opportunity. But the great problem that we face today is the fact that there is another America that is the kind of daily ugliness about this other America that transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. In this other America, thousands and thousands of work-starved men walk the streets in search for jobs that do not exist. In, In this other America, millions of people are forced to live in rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. In this other America, thousands and thousands of boys and girls are forced to attend overcrowded, inadequate, substandard, quality-less schools where the best in their little minds can never come out. And so often they end up finishing high school every year by the thousands, reading at a sixth and eighth grade level, not because they are dumb, not because they don't have native intelligence, but because the schools are so overcrowded, inadequate, and devoid of quality that they are not able to rise to their full potential. Now, in this other America, we find a lot of people, some are Appalachian whites, some are Mexican-Americans, some are Puerto Ricans, some are American Indians. The vast majority, in proportion to their size in the population, is the American Negro. And so the Negro finds himself living in a triple ghetto, a ghetto of race, a ghetto of poverty, a ghetto of human misery. This, in a real sense, is a great problem that we face in our nation today. When the Constitution was written, a strange formula to determine taxes and representation declared that the Negro was 60% of a person Today, the Negro is only 50% of the person. Of the good things in life, the Negro has approximately one-half those of whites. Of the bad things of life, he has twice as many as whites. Thus, half of all Negroes live in substandard housing, and Negroes have half the income of whites. Now, when we turn to the negative experiences, the Negro has a double share. There are twice as many unemployed. The infant mortality rate is double. Uh, That of whites, twice as many Negroes dying in Vietnam in proportion to size uh, in the population. These are facts of life which we must recognize. Now, this has made for a great deal of bitterness, a great deal of despair, a great deal of discontent in the Negro community. And it is out of this despair, it is out of this discontent that we must understand what is happening in our cities today. It is out of this that we must understand what is happening with reference to the riots. I think everybody knows my views about riots. I raise my voice over and over again against them because I feel that riots are self-defeating and socially destructive. My belief in long violence is not in nonviolence,' is not something new. It has been a commitment on my part for many years, and I've tried to keep it not only at the forefront of my thinking, but at the forefront of our struggle for freedom and justice. And over and over again, I've said that we must struggle passionately and unrelentingly for first-class citizenship, but we must never use second-class methods to gain it. Now, after saying this, I think it is just as important, and this is where we often find the missing point. It is just as important for those who condemn riots to condemn the conditions which continue to exist in our society that cause people to engage in this kind of self-defeating action. And And these are the conditions that are here and that must be dealt with. And I say today that as I condemn riots I'm just I'm going to be just as firm in condemning the congress of our nation for that congress has revealed that it loves rats more than the negro citizens of this country that congress has revealed <laughs> that congress has revealed that the poor had no right to hope because it was that congress that uh, cut off uh, the rent supplement bill, and that Congress also cut back the model Cities proposal. And these things have led to a great deal of disappointment and legitimate uh, discontent. The other thing that I must say is that a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so it is still true that our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as justice is denied, as long as justice is postponed, uh, we will find ourselves facing these moments of social disruption. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. What is needed today is something massive, a massive program to get rid of poverty, to get rid of the blight of our cities, to get rid of slums. It cannot be a token program. It must be a massive uh, program. One of the great problems that we face in the Negro community is that the Negro still finds himself perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. And whether we realize it or not, certainly many people know it, but all too many people don't know it. The Negro is facing a depression in his everyday life. I've been working in Cleveland this summer, and I walk the streets of Huff every week. And I find there thousands and thousands of young men, young women, older men and older women, devoid of work. The unemployment rate is 15.8 percent. Fifty-eight percent of the young men of Cleveland are either—young Negro men are either jobless or making incomes below the poverty level. This is happening all over the country. Now that is nothing more dangerous than to build a society with a large segment of people in that society who feel that they have no stake in it, who feel that they have nothing to lose. And it is time for our nation to take a stand against unemployment and underemployment. And we were in the midst of a staggering depression in the 30s. We met this problem by bringing into being the WPA. Here we tailor jobs to men, not men to jobs. In other words, we said jobs first, training later. We made it possible for thousands and thousands of unemployed people to go to work. Now it is time for us to develop anew, some agency that will provide a job for everybody who needs a job, man or woman, white or black. The other thing that I would like to mention is that there is a need for something like a guaranteed annual income for every American family. We can continue to debate this, but the need now is to challenge or rather attack poverty directly and not indirectly, and I think the way to challenge it or to attack it directly is uh, through a guaranteed annual income. And this, I believe, will lift thousands and thousands of people, Negro and white, uh, from the shackles of poverty. John Kenneth Galbraith has said somewhere that this kind of guaranteed annual wage would uh, cost the nation only about $20 billion a year. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but when we look at some other things, we discover that that isn't that much money for a a nation that can spend $35 billion to fight what I consider an unjust, ill-considered war in Vietnam, and $20 billion to put a man on the moon can certainly... Spend billions of dollars to put God's children on their own two feet right here on earth and so these are some of the things there are many other things I could say programmatically but the time is limited and so I conclude by saying that we have the challenge to get on with the job of making the American dream a reality. And I say something finally in the realm of the spirit, and that is that there must be a recognition on the part of all Americans that we are tied together in a single garment of destiny. In other words, white Americans and black Americans must realize the mutuality of their destinies whether we like it or not, our language, our cultural patterns, our material prosperity, and even our food are an amalgam of black and white. And so there can be no separate black path to power and fulfillment that does not intersect white roots, and there can be no separate white path to power and fulfillment short of social disaster that does not recognize the need to share that power with black aspirations for freedom and human dignity. We all need each other. The Negro needs a white man to free him from his fear, and the white man needs a Negro to free him from his guilt. John Donne put it in graphic terms years ago, no man is an island in time itself, every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And then he goes on toward the end to say, Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And so we must see this basic togetherness. We must see that we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And together we will set out to build a better and a greater America where every man will respect the dignity and worth of all human personality, and where we will join hands and live together as brothers. Thank you.
13: Thank you very much, Dr. King. The city of Atlanta, Georgia... Is, has long been one of the most modeled cities of the United States in its race relations. Long ago, more than 20 years ago, the chief of police, William Jenkins, integrated, well it was considerably over 20 years ago, integrated the police force. And last night, President Johnson appointed Chief Jenkins as one of the members of the panel to investigate the problems of riots in the big cities. I now call on the man who has so valiantly worked to keep Atlanta and make Atlanta, given it this enviable position, Mayor Ivan Allen. Thank you very much, Mr. Pearson.
15: Thank you very much, Mr. Pearson, fellow panelists, ladies, and gentlemen. I speak as the mayor of a great southern city that is confronted with the same problems, recognizes these problems, and is trying to do something about it as the other national cities of this country. We are confronted with an almost impossible situation. The only hope within the ability, the limited ability and competency of the cities to eventually solve the problem is to have both national definition and national assistance at a federal level. We have been ignored generally by the states who have been interested only in highways and a limited amount of education. Today, the cities of America, the national urban centers, growing rapidly, find themselves inheriting from the rural areas of America and the small cities of this country a great host of citizens, most of whom have been subjected to lack of political and civil rights, who are uneducated in many instances, who are impoverished, who are lacking in health facilities, who haven't had jobs, who haven't had adequate education, And they are moving into the central cities of America for the simple reason that there is a glimmer of hope in which they expect to receive that which they have not had in the rural and small-town areas of this country. The cities of America have no ability to control the input of people that are rapidly moving into them. In Atlanta, each year, some 10,000 impoverished poor, uneducated, mostly Negro citizens from the rural areas of the South move in. Unfortunately, with the artificial boundaries which have been imposed on us by state legislatures and with the inability to expand, we find that the affluent citizens, the wealthy, the educated, the able, those most competent at the present time to furnish leadership merely pack up and move to the comfort of the suburbs and ignore the problems that are being created by this great host of people that are moving in we find ourselves today confronted with the problems of insufficient services in every american city there can be no question but what through the past part of this century that the needs of the poor Mostly the Negro have been ignored. We haven't furnished equal services. Today we find ourselves with the problem of trying to step up these services, furnish them, provide better housing, do all of the things that are necessary. The cities are extremely limited in income. We have nowhere near the amount of funds nor the capabilities of passing the tax laws restricted by the states that are absolutely necessary To provide the services that a whole and fruitful population should have. These are the magnitude of the problems that American cities are confronted with today. I make no apologies for the leadership of American cities. They are the result of the structures of government that have been developed over a long number of years and which historically moved behind the needs of the people and only under great stress finally accomplish what is needed. But this is a grave national problem. It must have definition at a national level. The Congress can't wait for local governments to try to cope with a problem that can only be met on a national level. There's no better indication than what happened in the cities of America when we went through the Civil Rights Crusade. For years, the Congress and the federal government, after the uh, Supreme Court ruling, sat there and twiddled their thumbs while local communities tried to solve the problems of integration. We never had a chance in the world. Every time Atlanta took a step forward in the problems of integration, and I know Dr. King, with his familiarity with the problems of Atlanta, and other southern cities will bear me out. Every time Atlanta took a step forward, the dozens of small communities on the periphery in selfishness and with other disregard for the rights of human beings profited by the progressive steps that the central core cities were trying to take. And they said to the people, move out here, move away from the central core cities, let let all of the poor, let the Negro move into the central core cities. And this was the problem we've been confronted with. Obviously, at this time, what the President of the United States said last night must be our goal. Law and order in a democratic society must come first. But it would be ridiculous, foolish, stupid, and insane for America to hide its head in the sand now and hide merely behind a facade of law and order. We must, <laughs> we must find out why American citizens have not been full-fledged American citizens and have conducted themselves as they have in a disastrous fashion in Newark, Detroit, and other cities. We must attack the problem. If someone came to me as, out of, with a great host of money, and said, what would you do starting tomorrow to solve the problems in Atlanta, and if I looked on this as the same instance as a national goal, I would say that the cities of America, and La- Atlanta particularly, where I have the greatest knowledge of any locality, I would say that we have to mount a massive, complete attack to eliminate, in the next three to five years, the slums that make up the major American cities. I would say that... I would say that if I had the finances and the backing and the capabilities to build 20,000 low-income units in Atlanta during the next three to five years, and by virtue of providing a decent place to live, With three qualifications, I would eliminate the slums, and the three qualifications would be that these 20,000 units would be widely dispersed. I wouldn't attempt to destroy a present residential neighborhood, but I would say that they had to be widely dispersed over the city. I would say, number two, that as I spent some $300 million in Atlanta as I invested some $300 million in Atlanta to build 20,000 low-income housing units, that they would have to be built with a large percentage of personnel in the construction industries coming from the slum areas where these people live today and where the unemployment is the highest. And this would be a (laughs) qualification. Number one, they're dispersed. Number two, that... They would employ the people from the slums, and that we would gain five years in employment. And number three, that we would be making an investment, not an expenditure, in the future. To me, the answer is fairly simple. The Congress must mount an all-out attack. It must mount an all-out attack in the field of housing, we say today the problem is as simple as housing, jobs, and employment. These are the three fundamentals. We must amount an attack in the field of housing in order to have adequate, capable job capabilities and to be able to properly educate people. And if the Congress of the United States would provide a five year program of twenty or thirty billion dollars a year, and this wealthy country can well afford to do this because this is not an expenditure, this is an investment in the future of the country. We could eliminate the slums, we could provide adequate educational facilities, and above all, we could give the people, provide for all of the people in these areas an adequate feel of employment. I think this is the very guts of the matter, and that we cannot hide <coughs> our head in the sands, and that we must move forward vigorously in a simple attack to eliminate the problems that we've been building up and developing for the past hundred years. This I say, and I thank you for listening.
14: King, President of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference.
15: I'm Ivan Allen, Jr., Mayor of the City of Atlanta, Georgia. My name is Roy Wilkins, and I'm Executive Director of the
1: National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. I am Dick Gregory, and I feel that I am a nonviolent, passive revolutionist.
16: <laughs> My name is Mark Evans, the gentleman you have just met and you are about to meet face to face. edition of face-to-face the long hot summer has been marked by race riots of such violence and unprecedented number that every citizen among us must consider the cause and the cure his personal concern thanks to the cooperation of the International Platform Association meeting here in convention at Sheraton Park Hotel in Washington DC face-to-face is bringing you an exploration of this explosive problem Drew Pearson, nationally syndicated columnist, is responsible for bringing to this platform the distinguished men you have just met. Now let's meet Drew Pearson. Drew, would you give us a little bit of the background of the association? First, uh, I understand you've been its president. Uh, You are now its program chairman. Just a word uh, about the history and its purpose.
13: Well, the International Platform Association was founded approximately 75 years ago. By my father, William Jennings Bryan, and other speakers of that era.
16: I thought you said your father was William Jennings Bryan there for a few moments.
13: No, they were friends. Oh, I... This this was in a day before the microphone, before television, when the platform was the symbol of free discussion. And the the members, It was a trade association, still is to some extent, members believed in pre discussion. They used the platform as for speaking, for music, entertainment, and this is still the case. And we believe in discussion.
16: The audience here primarily is made up of professional lecturers, amateur lecturers, and uh, those who appear on platforms all over the nation. For the most part. Thank you very much, Mr. Drew Pearson. We're going to have some discussion now between some of these members of the panel, and each will make a, a brief summation of that which they have said in a a short talk prior to our having gone on the air and we'll have that right after I share this message with you
1: welcome back uh, we're listening to a uh, panel discussion from uh, late July 19th <laughs> Uh, featuring Dr. King, Roy Wilkins, and Dick Gregory, along with the mayor of uh, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Mayor
16: Allen. At a Uh, most appropriate time, this distinguished panel are appearing before a large gathering here at the Sheraton Park Hotel in Washington. All America and all the world is concerned about the riots that have taken place in our cities. As has been stated previously, these gentlemen have made some brief talks prior to having gone on the air, and we're going to ask them in summation to point out the major points they wish to emphasize. And I'll turn first to Dr. King.
14: The problems of our cities today are very great. And the problems of Negroes living in these cities are equally great and extensive. Some 92 percent of the Negroes of the United States find themselves living in cities. And they find themselves living in a triple ghetto in these cities on the whole, a ghetto of race, a ghetto of poverty, and a ghetto of human misery. And by the thousands and even millions, Negroes find themselves unemployed and underemployed. The young people find themselves attending a segregated Uh, schools that are so often devoid of quality, and thousands and thousands of Negroes in these cities are forced to live in rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. All of these conditions have made for great despair, and so many of the people who find themselves caught up in the agony of their daily lives, end up with the view that life is a long and desolate corridor with no exit sign. These are the people who, in moments of desperation, find themselves engaging in the riots that we have seen taking place in our country. Even though most of the people who are in these hopeless situations do not riot. It is now necessary for all to see that a destructive minority can poison the wellsprings from which the majority must drink. And so it is necessary for the nation as a whole to rise up now and find answers to this deep social problem. They must be answers that are real and honest and they must be answers that will lead to positive and massive action programs, programs that will spend the necessary money, the billions of dollars, to get rid of the blight of our cities, to get rid of the slums, to eradicate the poverty, to make uh, integrated quality education a reality. And I believe that with this kind of commitment, we can solve the problem. There can be no gainsaying of the fact that we're in a moment of crisis, but every crisis has not only its danger points, but it has its opportunities. And it is my... Welcome back.
1: And uh, that was taken from a panel discussion held in uh, late July 1967 in Washington, D.C., featuring Dr. Martin King Jr., Roy Wilkins, who was then Executive Secretary of the NAACP, along with uh, Mayor Allen of Atlanta, and Dick Gregory. And uh, that's going to uh, conclude our program uh, for today. We want to remind our listeners that uh, you can have access uh, to this program uh, by merely uh, logging on to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And by logging on to um, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, not only can you have access to today's program, but well over 1,100 other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal. If you want to read the Pan-African Newswire uh, on a daily basis, just go to our website at News dot blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of uh, Kenny Durham uh, from an album entitled Quiet Kenny. This is uh, Abayomi Ezekue signing off and have a beautiful week.